I'm going to try, try and do two things simultaneously, which, yeah, it's a risk, may fail. That's all right, I've got a return air flight. <laughs> and so we'll live. Um, uh, the outlines of the talks, uh, they're on the first one's page, whatever it is. Yep, seven, on facing persecution. Um, I, I don't really want to talk to you um, about the difficulties that you are all going through. But I'm not ignorant of that you're going through enormous turmoil and difficulties and you're all having to relate to it and respond to it differently. The last thing I think you need is someone from Sydney in Australia coming tell you what you're telling you your business. Right? And I'm not going to do it. You'll be relieved to know. But I can hardly talk to you about Christian ministry and church and life without knowing that that's in the background, what's well, not the background, it's in the foreground of most of your minds right now. And so I want to talk about our, and encourage you on in our gospel ministry. Um, in one sense, in what I think you should be doing, not in the detail of what steps to take next. You know, it's, it's, it's all different, it's all difficult, and you've got to work that out. But on the bigger picture of what we actually always need to be doing, and when you get caught into the middle of fights, quarrels, controversies, uh, often not of your own making, uh, really important to remember what the big picture is. We're, we're actually we're trying to achieve at the end whatever the fight is that we're in just at the minute. Um, and so I thought I'd do the two things. One, go back to Jesus, and two, go on to life in the here and now in ministry in general principle, um, which I let you draw into the situation. My brothers and sisters, I'm more than happy to hear the struggle you're in in your own church. Right? But I just don't think I'm the person who can tell you what to do. Uh, and I certainly can't tell all of you what to do because you're all in a different situation at this stage in game. Uh, but I want you to know that many of us are praying for you over the ditch because you're in tough times. Uh, and they're really tough times. And so come back with me to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go back there. Why do I go back there? Well, because... My brother, I know what this man says and I know what that man says, but I want to tell you what Matthew was saying. You know, you know what some people say righteousness is and what others say righteousness is, but let me tell you what righteousness is. And I actually was with you. Uh, I think you gave more credit than is necessary to the others. Um, come back to here and I'll tell you what the Sermon of the Mount is actually about, which is not what most books tell you what it's about. It's really about Jesus. That's not surprising. And the, the uh, Matthew, the, the Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting net into the sea, for they were fishermen. It's a good reason to cast your net in the sea, isn't it? And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and the sons of Zebedee, John his brother in the boat at the Zebedee, their father mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Built fundamentally into the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ is evangelism. It is not an extra, it's not an add-on, it's the fundamental. When he called the disciples, he called them to fish for men. Using the situation of fishermen that he's talking to, but that's what it is about. Uh, the fishing for men is an image of judgment in the Old Testament, but it's also judgment and salvation always go together. And so the coming of the kingdom of God will bring the judgment but repentance is there, which will bring salvation. And so Jesus is going to train his men to be fishermen, bringing the judgment and salvation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, you go across to Mark's gospel. If anyone would be uh, come after me, uh, anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake... And the Gospels will save it. You can't embrace Jesus without embracing the Gospel. And evangelism is just what we're called for. That's what we're called to do. It's the very plans and purposes of God. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Verse 28 is key, sorry, 25 is a key element to a description of what's happening. You see, when he feeds the, the 5,000, when he seats the 4,000, they're sitting down and they can be counted as the things are being distributed. But what is taking place here can't be counted. You can't know how many people, so they were coming and going all the time over a period of time. But the way of describing the impact is to talk of the geographical spread of them. And so verse 25 tells us where they're coming from. Now, if you go and look up your atlas and check it all out, you'll realise they're coming from all over Palestine. They're coming from over in the, the uh, Gentile area, the Decapolis. They're coming from the northern area of Galilee, where he was. They're coming from the southern area of uh, Jer Jer Jerusalem and Judea. And they're coming from the, over the eastern side of the Jordan. When you then sit down and start working out how long that's going to take you on Roman roads, you see, they're coming, they're, they're travelling for a week or two, but they're travelling with sick people, so there's every chance they're travelling for two or three weeks to come and see this man. His fame was everywhere. And people from the farthest parts of the Palestinian world were all flocking up to, to Galilee. I don't know how you describe that in New Zealand. I know what I'd say in Australia here. It's central Queensland. They're, they're going to the most backward place that... Is this being recorded? Uh, they're going to the most backward kind of, you know, the place where no one would think of going to. That's because 
the fulfillment of Isaiah, which is there in verse 12 of chapter 4, you see, of Zebulun and Naphtali, the people who live under the judgment of the northern end of, of, of Palestine, because that's where the Assyrians would come from, that's where the Greeks would come from, that everybody, the Egyptians would conquer there. So they, they were sitting in darkness, but the great day of judgment, of salvation is coming with the coming of the kingdom. And so now the releasing of the captives of Satan is taking place in the healing ministry of Jesus. And all over people are flocking in and the disciples are saying okay this is fishing for men we are here at the forefront of a massive national movement and this man is successful and this is a successful ministry and Jesus seeing the crowds chapter 5 verse 1 not irrelevant you see our chapters they, they, they do balk us don't we I'm going to preach on the Sermon on the Mount I start chapter 5 mistake I've got to start back in chapter 4 seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and then he's, this is discipleship training for people who have left their fishing nets to become fishers for men they've just seen him fish for men He's now training them in fishing for men. But his training is the exact reverse of what you'd expect. Uh, the training and the teaching is public. It's not private stuff. When you come to the end of the sermon, chapter 7, verse 28, uh, when, the Jews when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds are astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. It's not like it's a secret, hidden kind of information. But it is fundamentally, in the face of the crowds, what he said to his disciples. That's the context of this great sermon. And what's he say? And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, each of those blessings, those beatitudes, you can find in the Old Testament. Uh, each of them has the expectation of the Old Testament. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, is Psalm 37, verse 11, if I remember correctly. Psalm 37, 11 would say the same thing, you see. Um, there was a, a great uh, piece of graffiti in the London Underground about that one. Yeah, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth, if that's all right with the rest of you. Uh, uh, the the plans and purposes of God are the reversal of normal expectation but they were already revealed to us in the Old Testament that the good life would come to those who are missing the good life in the here and now uh, those who mourn uh, in um, uh, where is that verse 4 you see that's Isaiah 61 uh, they're all there. They're mourning because the, the house of Israel is in judgment, it is under condemnation. Uh, how shall we sing the songs of Zion while we're sitting in Babylon? You know, Psalm 137. 
There is the mourning. It's not just mourning over my personal sin. Uh, we tend to always be reading ourselves into the Bible rather than letting the Bible read us. Um, it, it's, it's not that, that. I mean, yes, we should mourn over our personal sin. It's over Israel mourning over being under the judgment of God because of their sinfulness. And they are mourning for the day when, when they will be comforted. Comfort, comfort my people, says the great uh, prophet Isaiah. Uh, he really is so dominant in the New Testament. I agree with that. I think Mark's gospel is just as redolent with Isaiah references. And here also, you see, God is looking, the, the people who are people of God are looking forward the day that has been promised to them, the day of comfort. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is coming. And therefore, the poor in spirit will receive it now. Those who mourn, they're going to be comforted now. Those who are seeking righteousness, it's coming now because the kingdom brings righteousness with it and, and the meek will now inherit the land. The, the earth is not right there. I'm sure it's the land, the promised land, uh, tears, gears. It's the promised land. Uh, so all the, the fortunes of life are about to be reversed because the kingdom is coming. But then there's a shift in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a change. Rejoice and be glad, verse 12, is an addition to a blessing beyond just the blessing. The blessing seems to be the same as verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, but yet there is a fundamental difference that happens between verse 10 and 11. It's the fundamental difference of moving from the third person to the second person. See, with the coming of the kingdom, those who are mourning, those who are, uh, those who are meek, those who are uh, being persecuted, their fortunes in life are going to be reversed. But you, my disciples, what's your blessing? This is not about them, this is about you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I don't know what they thought when they heard those words. But why would I be hurt on Jesus' account. I, I've left Dad, I've left the fishing, I've now joined this national movement. It's promised the coming of the kingdom we've been waiting for for a thousand years and it's demonstrated by all these incredible reversals of people's illnesses and the, the dominance of the evil spirits over them and the crowds are gathering and the new movement's coming and I'm in the cabinet. I don't know if I'm going to be the treasurer or I'm going to be... But I am right there. I mean, they're still thinking like this in, you know, Mark 10, aren't they? Like, can I sit on the right hand? Can I sit on the left hand? They, they see themselves in the front row, centre of the new worldwide movement with the Messiah there. And the first thing he really says to them is, you're going to be persecuted. Hey, but rejoice. You know, you're hanging around with the best of people, the prophets, who were killed, stoned, sawn in two, direct. That, that's your company. You're going to be in the persecuted group. 
I thought when I came across here, this is not a bad passage to talk to you guys about. Because right? there's nothing new under the sun, to quote an old friend of ours. And I don't know who and what and how you're going to struggle with what you're getting in, but you need to know that if you're going to be one of Jesus' fishermen, persecution is normality. Suffering is normal. Persecuted and having people say all kinds of evil things against you and all kinds of falsehood against you, don't be surprised, expect it. This is what you are called to. When he said, take up the cross and follow me, he wasn't saying, go to the jeweller and get a really nice encrusted one with the diamonds. and uh, That is not the cross he was talking about. Uh, if you're going to follow the suffering Messiah, you're going to suffer. That is what you should, that's what you should have signed up for. That's what they should have told you at the beginning. If, if you get hurt now, it's in a sense because you had false expectations. When they say all manner of evil falsely against you, you're in the company of the great prophets. Elijah, Moses, Elisha. You, you think of one which wasn't persecuted, reviled, hated in his own time. Jeremiah, you know, sitting down in the bottom of the well. You know, I mean, all of them had just miserable lives. And that is the character of Christian ministry, misery. Rejoice and be glad. The misery is yours, you see. You've got to see the... You've got to have the right expectations to be able to endure whatever it is that's going to be bowled your way and is already being bowled your way at the moment. You've got you've to get back to the big picture of our Lord Jesus. This is what he promised us in the first place. You see, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. <coughs> You see, the blessings of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of uh, point two under my outline, leads you to the disciples' blessing. Of verse eleven, that important shift that the disciples' blessing, in particular, is that still in this world, persecution for righteousness' sake, persecution for Jesus' sake, that is what we're expecting, and it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Why is it a good thing, not a bad thing? Well, because you're salt and light. You've got the salt and the light of the city on the hill. Now, at this point so far, you haven't been too upset by anything I've said, but I want to take away from you one of your favourite sermons and ditch it in the garbage bin because it was always wrong. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry about that, but, you know, it'd be nice to speak the truth rather than the, the comfortable lie. You see, the light, you are the light of the world because you are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and lighten all men with the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And you are the salt of the earth because you are the preservative and the taste of society that will improve the social welfare and justice of our society and our land. 
is the sermon that has been preached a thousand times in a thousand pulpits and it was always wrong. And if it's your sermon, that's alright, just quietly ditch it, get hold of the tape, get rid of it, uh, down, take it off the web, whatever, because it's wrong. Uh, it always has been wrong and it's still wrong. You see, how do we get there? We got there because the usages of salt and the image of salt has dominated our thinking and because our theology and our kind of view of life is that we wanted to have evangelism and social justice held in kind of balance with each other. And so we found these two images could do that for us. It's just a pity that Jesus hadn't been taught properly because he didn't know that. You see, there's very little social justice in Jesus' teaching. You know, uh, uh, bid my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now there's an appeal for social justice to which Jesus says, don't be covetous. <laughs> he doesn't actually say, oh yes, where's the brother? Now you've got to divide this up evenly, you've got to be fair. He just warns and tells a parable against greed and covetousness. There's almost no social justice in Jesus' teachings. That's just what we want there to be. And you can get social justice in the whole teachings of the scriptures. It's not inconsistent with Jesus. It's just that's not actually what Jesus was on about at the time. Uh, it's in Moses. He didn't need to repeat it. Um, but it's, it's, it's the salt that gave me the clue. Because as I was preparing one day, I came across this and I thought... Somewhere, somewhere in the background of my ground, someone told me that salt had to do with sacrifices. And that really had nothing to do with taste and justice. So I started to research salt. I looked into the Dictionary of the Ancient World and I discovered that unlike the 19th century, salt was used for lots of reasons. In fact, my dictionary told me there were uh, 13 different reasons for which salt was used. And so I... I a little surprised by that, but salt was used in fertilizers. Uh, salt was used for not only fertilizing crops but also destroying crops. One of the ways that you can destroy crops is to use too much salt in the fertilizer because nothing will grow then. And therefore, one of the ways of wrecking your neighbor's ground was to scatter salt everywhere. And so then salt became a way of cursing people. You, you threw a little bit of salt, was a way of saying, Cursed be you. But salt was also used as a way of uh, taxation. A tax was paid in salt. And salt was then also used as a way of expressing fellowship. So to invite someone to a meal was to invite them to share salt with you. You shared the salt of the king by sitting at his table with him. And salt was rubbed into babies when they were first born as a, as a cleansing agent. And salt was, there's all these hosts of reasons of salt. So why do I think salt is preservative and and taste. Well, of course, that's what the ancient world used salt for. But what does the Bible use? So I went then to salt and looked up all the references to salt in the Bible, as you should if you're going to prepare properly. And I discovered I could find every one of those 13 uses in the Old Testament and a couple more, <laughs> like Elijah throwing salt into water and it became fresh. A little unusual. It's not a normal practice. Uh, it's recorded because it is unusual. But so I, you know, I just wound up with more references to salt, 
and very few to the idea of preservative or to the idea of taste. So what does it mean that salt uh, loses its saltiness? In fact, my chemistry friends tell me salt never loses its saltiness. Uh, that's one of the characteristics of salt. So is the Bible wrong? And the answer is no, because the ancient world's salt was picked up in the gypsum flats around the Dead Sea. Uh, and what happens is the salt uh, gets washed out and the gypsum remains. And so it looks like salt, it's white powder, uh, which is tasteless. Uh, and so that's what it means. It's, the salt's gone, there's no longer any use to you. Well, which doesn't help me know what Jesus is thinking. And so I don't, I mean, he's an Old Testament man, but... So I then chase through the New Testament, especially through Jesus' teaching, to see how does Jesus use salt when he talks about it, because what's his idea on salt? And most of them are parallel passages, but I came to see a very strange one at the end of Luke 14. Salt is good, he says in verse 34 of Luke 14. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's, no, it's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He was in ears to hear, let him hear. Why am I interested in preserving or tasting a manure pile? That seems a highly unlikely kind of idea that salt is basically taste and preservative when we're talking about it's no use for the manure. So why is salt, why would you salt your manure pile? Well, the answer is fertilisers. All fertilisers are improved with salt. Even to this day, nearly all fertilisers have salt as one of the components in them. Uh, the fact that we think salt's taste and thing is because we're just ignorant of salt. Salt's used for all kinds of things, you see. And even to this day, and in the ancient world, it was an essential part of your fertilising. So, you are the manure pile of the world and the light of the... What, what are we talking about here? It doesn't quite make sense. Um, by the way, the word earth very frequently should be translated land. Uh, if they translated it land, you would think, is he talking about the promised land or is he talking about the soil or is he talking about, you know, New Zealand? Uh, whereas if you translated earth, you immediately think the whole world. Um, but the light of the world and the salt of the land might be about Jews and Gentiles. You would think that if you translated it as land. I don't think it is, but at least it raises the question for you. Right? At least you've got... So what's salt? What's light? Well, for your frustration and enormous liberation, if you will grasp hold of this, let me tell you, you don't need to know. Now, having gone through this whole exercise, which took me a day or two of work, I may say, and, you know, Sunday's calling and the sermon has to be prepared, uh, you don't need to know. Because there's not two images and metaphors in this passage. There are three. What's the third one? Not rhetorical question. What's the third one? Sorry? Yeah, or a city on a hill. <laughs> Why we've limited Jesus to two, 
than explained all his message and just ignore the other one that's there, the city on the hill. Well, what's the city on a hill got to do with salt, got to do with light? It's the same thing with all three. Total distinctiveness, unhidden. You, you can't actually hide the thing. It, and in fact, its difference is what makes it so worthwhile. You get the light and cover it up, <laughs> what's the use of that? Salt that's lost its saltiness was well, not even good for the manure pile. It's got to be different to be of any value. For the light to be of value, it shines into the darkness. For the salt to be of value, it's got to stand out with its taste different to everything else. And for the city, <laughs> you can't hide a city on a hill. That's just one of the things about cities on hills. They, they can't be missed. So what you have to be is different. Fundamentally, completely different. That's what you must be. Now, we're having a John Stott morning this morning. John Stott's very helpful little commentary on uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is wrong on this passage, uh, actually points to chapter 6 verse 8. And in chapter 6 verse 8 he says, this is, it's not uh, grammatically, syntactically, it's not logically the uh, um, topic sentence of the sermon but in terms of content it is the topic sentence of the sermon it's the, it says do not be like them that's what John said, Salt says the sermon is about do not be like them which is what salt and light and the city and the hill is about you are not to be part of the rest of the world you are to be different it's called holiness. The, the essence of holiness is separation, is different, is distinctiveness. And the reason why you will be persecuted and hated and reviled is because you're different. And if you become like everybody else, they'll love you. The world loves its own. It hated Jesus because Jesus was different. And Jesus says, if they hate me, they will hate you my disciples and so if I am taking up the cross you take up the cross you have to be different and if you are you will be persecuted that's what's happening now in what way do you have to be different let your light so shine before men so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. <laughs> I used to go to 8 o'clock communion service every Sunday uh, as a, as a uh, young teenager. And uh, they always read that, that verse just before the offertory. Uh, I couldn't see any connections with the offertory. And when I finally worked out the connections with the offertory, I realised it's possibly the worst verse to read immediately before the offertory. But it's in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, so good luck to you. Mind you, there are about 40 verses you're supposed to read. This was the only one they ever read. Um, so, you know, let everybody see you how much money you're putting in the plate. It's not exactly what Jesus would say. <clears throat> let people see your good works so that they may glorify your Father in heaven has this fundamental logical problem in it. That is, if people see your good works, they will always glorify you. They don't see you help a little old lady across the road. 
who wants to go across the road, don't help the ones who don't want to go across. They don't see you help the little lady across the road and say, oh, God's wonderful. They say, oh, you're a wonderful person. I always praise you. So what other good works that you do that will bring glory to your Father? Well, it's in the very nature of the works, but it's more than that. People will see them and they will give glory to your Father. That is, these are not just any old good works. These are the good works that are clearly the sign of God having dealt with you. Uh, the Americans got a wonderful phrase. Uh, uh, he's got religion. He used to be a drunken, sot, womanizer, gambler. He got religion and look at him now. He's married, he's upright. He's, uh, what happened to old Fred? He got religion. Uh, the Texan told me yesterday they use a different thing. He, uh, he got struck. <laughs> right? What's happened? God has changed them. It's the manifestation of the transformation of the Spirit of God in lives that are not just, he's become a nice person. It's you live differently to the way everybody else lives. You, you actually changed, transformed from what you used to be to now what you are. But what you are will be transformative of the whole society if they were to follow what your pattern is. It's that kind of work which will bring glory to your Father, which is in heaven. So what is the passage about? It's not about social justice. It's about world evangelism. It's about transformation. It's about conversions. It's, it's about fishing for men. That's what, Jesus hasn't moved off onto a, an ethics course. He's continued on training his disciples on what discipleship will mean. It will mean this transformed life. And so... If you want to evangelise, if you want to fish for men, here are the consequences already. You're going to have to be different to people all around about you. Such difference that will lead you to expect persecution, hatred, reviling, falsehood, all the manner of things said against you. Because you're going to live a life that will be manifestly affected by God. Uh, the word godly has been undermined by Christians. Into, that we, we've unintentionally stuck an extra O in it to mean goodly. The word godly, eusebeia in the Greek, is, is a word about pious relationship with God. What is the opposite of godly? Uh, just quickly, what do you think the opposite of godly? What's the opposite word? Ungodly, Ungodly. yeah, no. Godless. Godless is the opposite of, of godly. Oh, I know, I'm just playing semantic tricks, aren't I? But there's a, a point behind the semantic trick which is very important. Ungodly and godly has a horizontal moral value to it as words. But the actual word eusebeia is a very vertical religious word. Ungodly is not, not adequate. Godless is the opposite of godly. And you've got to do those kinds of good works that are the works of godliness, which are going to be dramatically different to the world's values and the world's virtues and the world's understandings and morality. And will bring praise to our Heavenly Father and persecution to us. So what of a minister? 
Well, you see, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then evangelism is not an add-on, but a central part of your existence. You remember 1 Corinthians 8 to 10? 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is kind of the, the flip side reverse of, of, of Matthew. See, Matthew, it's all, uh, the Sermon on the Mount's all, if you're going to be a great disciple, a maker, an evangelist, you've got to be different. 1 Corinthians 8 to 11, you've got to be the same. You know, to the Jew I became as a Jew, to the Greek I became as a Greek, to, I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I may save some. So one, one, you know, how to be a great evangelist, be different. That's Jesus' advice. How to be a great evangelist, be like everybody else. That's Paul's advice. But when you look at Paul's advice properly, no, he's actually saying being very different. <laughs> very, very different. Because you do not live for yourself, but you live for others. That is dramatically different. Uh, that little passage of Greek to the Greek, Jew to the Jew. Some people use it as, as a Christian liberty to go and do the things I wanted to do anyway. When in fact, it's the exact reverse. It's saying, I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what you want to do. Because I want to save you. And so I'm going to watch soccer. Well, it's an appalling idea. You know, it's dreadful. I mean, I don't mind being a masochist and being beaten at rugby every time we come against the All Blacks, but at least it's rugby. At least it's a civilised game. At least it's sensible. It's got some... But, you know, the idea I'm going to watch these people play 90 minutes and then can't decide who's the winner and so have a, you know, an extra 30 minutes, then can't decide, so then they have a little shootout with each other. I mean, it's a daft, stupid game. But <laughs> if the only way I'm going to win this bloke to the Lord is to me not to watch rugby but to watch soccer, there's, there's no choice. I go watch soccer. Uh, try to keep awake. Uh, as I watch this game, you see. I don't do what I want. I do what is necessary for them, what they want. And so the passage in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10 winds up with a very important little passage for us in uh, 10, 31 following, where he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whoever eats bread or drinks the cup of the... Whoops. Went back two pages, didn't I? No? I went forward. Oh, God. Uh, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Paul's so adamant he's not a man pleaser. Here he says he tries to please everyone. But notice, it's not a man pleaser for his own sake. It's a man pleaser for their sake. I try to please everyone... Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. I will do anything for getting anything within the realms of, of glorifying to God. I won't sin in order to reach the sinner, but I will do anything in order. I will put my life out completely for their salvation. At that point, notice chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is not an optional extra. This is fundamental Christ. If I'm going to be like Christ, I must lay down my life for the salvation of others. This is a true saying worthy of all men to be received. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, I'm going to be like Christ and not go into the world to save sinners? That's an absurdity. It can't be. So evangelism is not an add-on for Christian ministry. Evangelism is an essential element of all Christian ministers. And you, you can't be a, a, a non-playing coach in Christian ministry. You know, those who 
teach, teach, and those who can't teach, teach others how to teach. Well, you can't do that. You, you've got to be a playing coach in this. And so you've got to be engaged in your own personal evangelism uh, as part of your Christian ministry. If you, whatever you do will be shown in the end. You're a city on a hill. You're a light that can't be hidden. You're a salt which is useless if it's not different. And a key element of your difference is that you fish for men. Our society, I don't know about New Zealand, but I presume it's the same Aussie in this one. I mean, we are so much alike and so much different, aren't we? Um, but our society hates proselytism with a vengeance. Right? They, well, of course they do. They don't want to change. They don't want to repent. Our message to our world is, you're going the wrong way, repent. Who wants to hear that message? No one loves us with that message. Of course they won't. We're telling them they're wrong. And it's an inevitability that they won't like us. Some will be saved hearing the message. But personal evangelism then is something that no one wants us to do except God. And those who are saved by us rejoice that we did. And you're in the best of all companies. Prophets of old and the Lord Jesus himself. And so, as a minister of the gospel, my personal evangelism must never cease. I just keep doing it. However, I want to suggest to you that we shouldn't try and evangelise our friends. Friendship evangelism is a, an unhelpful concept. Because how many friends do you have? And how long can you keep them after they've rejected the gospel? And are they true friends if you don't keep them after they've rejected the gospel? And how many times can you invite your friends to hear the gospel? It depends a little on the definition of friends, doesn't it? Most people you know, when they give testimony, will tell you that they were converted because of their friend. Therefore, we've said, ah, well then the way to evangelise is evangelise your friends. But most people only have four or five friends, real friends. Uh, in Australia, I don't no idea about you, but in Australia, the average household has, seven, has nine people visited during any year. Nine different people will visit. They might visit more than once, but there's only nine actually ever come into a person's home of whom seven are relatives. <laughs> so you gotta, just as a basic definition of friends, someone who would drop into my home, you're talking about two people. <laughs> now I know Christians are more hospitable than that, and we in Christian ministry are often, I mean, I've, had, I've had 60, 100 for breakfast, so you know, it, it's completely different in our kind of concept, but when we ask people to evangelise their friends, we're immediately limiting the mission field down to a tiny, tiny group of people who after they've invited 10 times and the person says, if you ever invite me again, we're not going to be friends anymore. You, know, you can't do it. No, no. I don't know the right word because I haven't got a good English word for it, but what we need is acquaintance evangelism. Acquaintance, an ugly, dirty word. Give me a better word. You know, associate evangelists. Or we, we're just contact evangelism. That's a better word, possibly. I don't know what the right word is. I can't get it. But we're out fishing for men. 
and women and children and old people in there. We're out fishing for humanity and for humans. We're going we're to evangelise anywhere and everywhere. Not have ourselves limited down just to friendships. Uh, and in Christian ministry, I think friendships are harder to maintain. Uh, you've been down at Dunedin 12 years. The number of friends that you grew up with here, very few contacts now, aren't there? I mean, you just grow away from friends in a modern world and more so in ministry world because you're so... My, my congregation are my friends. The friends who are my friends' friends, I haven't been able to keep up with them while trying to keep up with a thousand congregation members. That's just not possible. Just can't do it. But contacts, oh, I got contacts all the time. And that commitment to evangelism of them, it's a combination of two things. One, taking every opportunity. And two, time allocation. I was, when I was a student minister, I worked with a man, Bert Bovis. Bert was a great one. He was a fish and chip shop owner and a real estate agent. Um, fought in the Second World War. Uh, age 42, his wife wanted to go to hear the, Billy Graham and the church was offering a bus trip out, but he owned a car and it was beneath his dignity to get in a bus, so he insisted on driving her out to the Billy Graham crusade and uh, his pride and his arrogance. And as he sat there, what Billy Graham said made sense and he became a Christian that night and his wife didn't. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's the character of God, isn't it? This man who had no connections at all. He was an alcoholic. He, you know, no connections at all. Just walked out of darkness into light. He's in glory these days, Bert. You know, he would be 100 years old if he was alive today, I think. But from that day onwards, Bert never shut up about the Lord Jesus Christ. You couldn't shut up Bert. He just would talk. And I remember going around with him. I went to a Sunday school picnic with him. He drove us out, out to this place, went to this park. There was a gatekeeper at the park that gave, you know, charged you $5 to park inside the park for the day. I would have just paid the $5, driven in, not Bert. Uh, the man says, $5, isn't it a great day? And the bloke says, yeah, it is a nice day. And he says, God's terrific, isn't he? God's given us this day. We've come down here with the children to tell them about Jesus and look at the world that God has given us. To... I, mean, I would have just given the bloke five bucks. You know, I, I wanted to park my car, not Bert. There was a man. There was a man who needed to hear the gospel. There was a human that needed to be treated like a human, not a vending machine. He was not going to drive in and park that car until he'd shared the gospel with that man. That was just how he operated all his life. And it taught me much. It terrified me, but taught me much. There are more opportunities than you can think of. One of the ones I've found over and over again, pray with people. You enter into prayer with people, you move out of the secularist worldview. Yeah, my neighbour says, oh, my dog's, you know, a little Italian neighbour. I didn't have almost any English and, I, you know, I've got no Italian. And I saw her there one day upset. I said, what's up? And she said, oh, Giuseppe, he's in hospital, he's in hospital. I said, let's pray about it. She'd never prayed with anybody in her life. I mean, she went to Mass occasionally. Her son had become a Jehovah's Witness, but she didn't pray. I just stood there and prayed with her. The whole nature of our relationship was never the same again. 
the opportunities to share information and share gospel with her and so on was available just by always taking every opportunity and even making ones just as a manner of life we're in the business of fishing for men not some all right? in season out of season you just got to keep evangelism always happening the other one is make time because public ministry will take as much time as you give it plus a bit more like administration does doesn't it just and so if I do not allocate a night a week or an afternoon night or a day a week to evangelize I can go for a year or two without doing any it's quite extraordinary and I can be really busy in the ministry. I've got to fix the, 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 the downpipes. I've got to go for the financial committee. I've joined the school council. I've, I've got this. I've got to the, prepare the funeral. I've got to, all hundreds of other things that I've got to do. And the one thing I don't actually do is the reason for which I went in the ministry in the first place. That was to tell people about Jesus. Because I'm so busy doing everything else. So I'm going to talk later about your role in training the congregation to be evangelists but you've got to be the playing coach so the first thing you've got to get right is do it yourself but the more you do it the more you can reasonably expect that uh, you'll be very different to the people around about you and you will be reviled and hated and persecuted made fun of spoken falsely of in all kinds of ways and you will be able to rejoice with the prophets in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you that he came into this world to save sinners such as us. We, we, eternity is not long enough to praise you, Father, for sending your Son. And we thank you yet again this day. But we thank you also, Father, that you have entrusted with us, put into our hands, the gospel of salvation. That because of what he has done, we can now save people by our preaching, by our proclamation, by our telling them the great news of your son's death and resurrection. And that you should count us faithful by entrusting this message to us, Father, almost as astonishing as it is that you saved us. And we do pray, Father, that you would enable us not to lose heart, not to be discouraged, knowing that the God of this world will veil the minds of the unbelievers. Help us not to be discouraged because we know the power of the Spirit of God, your Spirit, Father, in the Gospel, in our mouths that as we speak our words we speak your word that word which was powerful enough to create the universe in the first place so heavenly father embolden our hearts again especially at this time when we are in trouble and difficulty here confusion and bewilderment and opposition and hostility within our denomination help us father not to lose sight and not to lose heart of the bigger, grander picture that your Son has given us in calling us to fish for others, that we may press on, living and dying 
for the salvation of other people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.